The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, as we move into this section now in John 17, verses 9 through 10, we're moving into the intercessory portion of, of these verses. And Jesus is very specific as to who he prays for and why. So John chapter 17, verses 9 through 10, Jesus praying to the Father says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Now, when Jesus prays at this point, it is for those that belong to God. When he presents the atoning sacrifice, it is for those whom God has set aside. This is a reminder of the unique position that those of us who have accepted Christ occupy. When you begin to realize as we move through this chapter, and as I've said, the entire chapter 17 is about Jesus praying and the first five verses, he prayed for himself and his glory. And for verses, verses 6 through 19, he prays for those that are with him while covering us in that prayer. But then in verses 20 to 26, he turns specifically to those who believe because of them, which includes you and I. But in this portion of Scripture, we see his prayers covering us as well. The most interesting thing about these verses is not that they are part of a prayer that Christ is praying for his own only but rather it is that they, that they tell from the perspective of our Lord why he prays for them, why he prays for them as opposed to praying for everyone else. So there are three reasons that I want us to see this morning why he prays specifically. The first is because they are the fathers. The second is because, they, because all that the Father has is also Christ. And third because he is glorified in them. So let's look first of all at the first one, that he is praying for them because they are the fathers. Now, this means that Jesus values them simply because they belong to God. And uh, we could find illustration of this reasoning whenever you are caring for something that belongs to somebody you really love and care for and the joy you have in this. I can think of a, a, an illustration um, years ago when Marilyn and I first started dating, and I would go home with her on the weekends from school. And uh, her parents, of course, her dad was a preacher, but he was a pretty brilliant one. And uh, I remember, and some of you I've shared this with, but I remember walking in the door the very first time. And there they were sitting on the couch, and Pastor Diddy was reciting, and Phyllis, his wife, was next to her with an open Bible, and she went, what is this? Well, he was memorizing the New Testament, and he was halfway through Philippians, and we had to wait until he finished Philippians. I thought, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. But he was very endearing, and I loved being around him. I grew so much from him. One of the great blessings I've had in my life is to have awesome parents and awesome in-laws. And so I learned a lot from him. But from time to time, he would let me use his car and he loved cars. He loved his cars. He never had fancy cars. But uh, in fact, I think the one in, I'm thinking about now was a white Dodge Dart. 
and uh, he kept it clean. Everything always had to be meticulous, but in the years he'd had it, it gotten oxidized, and there was those terrible sap stains that, you know, you get that you can't get out. And so one day I, I went to the store and I bought some rubbing compound and some wax and I spent the Saturday afternoon washing it and then buffing it and buffing it and buffing until I got all the oxidation off, got it down to the original paint and then waxed it. And I'll never forget when he came out and looked at that. He went crazy. I mean, he just couldn't believe it. Like it just rolled off the showroom floor. And the joy that I had of caring for something that belonged to him was, was just a highlight. I mean, I, I just, it was amazing. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that. Now, if you understand that illustration, you begin to understand when Christ is praying uh, for the, these people that they belong to God. And one of the great joys of Christ in his heart is praying for those that belong to the Father. And so he's saying, in essence, Father, I'm praying for these persons because they're yours. And I'm concerned for what is yours. This is a, one, is a wonderful for, uh, for you and I to grasp in relationship to those around us. And we're going to see later in the message how it applies to us in our personal relationship. But this is a change that even came in my heart when I switched from a businessman to a pastor. You know, from a numbers guy to a shepherd. And it's amazing what happens when you make that transition. You know, there'd be people that, you know, their attendance was pretty lax, and I'd sit there and go, oh, that's a bummer. Now I look and go, oh, I missed it. Oh, what's God trying to do in your heart? And it changes. And all of us as God's people have this passion that grows as we get closer to God. So though we have been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says seven times in this chapter, the Father nevertheless has a continuing interest in us, and we are his possession. He gives us to Jesus Christ as an act of divine grace, whereby when he dies on the cross, he pays for their sins. So here are these sinners that God loves. He gives them to Jesus to secure their freedom from sin. They, we, never cease to belong to God the Father, but now we are his possession, hidden in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The second reason we, is we belong to God the Son and God the Father. You'll notice in the second part of verse 9 and into verse 10 it says, For they are yours, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Now what exactly does this mean? Well, it means that the Lord is speaking of an interest in us that the Father and the Son share jointly. It's as though having said the, in the first instance, they're yours, he then acknowledges in the next breath, but they are mine also. And furthermore, it has always been the case that everything that belongs to you as Father belongs to me as Son. And everything that belongs to me as Son belongs to you as Father. So Jesus therefore comes, not pleading for a cause that's of interest to himself only, or to the Father only, but for that which is of interest to them jointly. And folks, that's you and me. That's you and me. Now, there's a second level in which we can consider this mutual interest. There's an interest between the Father and the Son, 
But there is also a mutual interest between the Father and the Son and ourselves. We see it in the way the pronouns are mixed up in here. They, I, mine, and yours. They're literally thrown together. So we have a situation here in which we could honestly understand that God the Father loves us. Jesus Christ loves us. And when we are sanctified and washed in the blood of Christ, we have the same interest in them, a relationship. You need to remember that in the Garden of Eden, when God created man and woman, he created them in his image for his fellowship and for his glory. But when sin took place, it severed that relation. And every person ever bought, born since then has been born in sin and spiritually dead. So when Christ died on the cross and purchased our freedom through his shed blood, that relationship is now restored. And it's so amazing because you need to grasp the reality here that of what really salvation is. Our relationship is restored. That relationship originally intended in the creation of man, he wants a living, vibrant relationship with you and me. And because of that, Jesus prays specifically for us. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for those who've been set apart. He's praying for those who have accepted him as personal savior because they belong to the Father. And now our relationship grows with them. So hear this. This means that our concerns, however small, are God's concerns. God's concerns, however noble and beyond our understanding, should be our concerns also. God's concerns are ours in the sense that they are for our good and affect us, just as the decision of a head of state might affect the country. You are important to God. Therefore, he cares for your life. But we should be, cons but we should be con concentrated on the things that he's concerned about. We often fall into the trap that God exists for my well-being. But that's backwards. You know, God, where are you? I have this need. Where are you? Why aren't you meeting my needs? I accepted you. What's going on? Why aren't you? No, that's not the point. We exist for his glory. That's why man was created in the first place. And salvation restores us back to that original relationship where we can now bring glory to him. And that should be the focus of the heart of every child of God. We are for his glory, and therefore we are to be concerned about what brings him glory. Just think of the problems we could eliminate if that was our focus in life. It's not about me, myself, and I. It's about the Father, the Son. That's why we exist, and that's why we're saved. And then thirdly, Jesus is glorified in me. Notice verse 10, and glory has come to me through them. How is Jesus glorified in us? Well, there are several reasons. Number one, by saving me. Put your name in that point, by saving in your name. It is his doing, and the glory must go to him. Spurgeon put it this way, 
When the Lord lays hold upon a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, when he arrests the one who has been guilty of blasphemy, whose very heart is reeking with evil thoughts, when he picks up the far-off one, the abandoned, the desolate, the fallen, as he often does, and when he says, this shall be mine, I will wash these in my blood. I will use these to speak my word. Oh, then is he glorified in them. Read the lives of many great sinners who afterwards became great saints, and you will see how they, they tried to glorify him. Not only she who washed his feet with her tears, but many others as well. Oh, how they have loved to praise him. Eyes have wept tears, lips have spoken words, but hearts have felt what neither eyes nor lips could speak, of adoring gratitude to him. He can change the most wretched life. He can calm the storms in the most turbulent life. He is the author of life. He controls it, and he will work mightily through the surrendered heart. And folks, that's the message of the cross, that he purchased us out of the slave market of sin, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, that we might bring glory to him. When that becomes the focus of your heart and mind, life changes dramatically. Because it's no more about what I can get, what I can avoid, the trouble I can stay away from. It's trusting him in the midst of it all to bring glory to him. And that's the life that he blesses. Secondly, by our trusting him in this life. Donald Gray Barnhouse was talking to a man about the gospel. The man said to him, but what does God want? Tell me, what does God want of me? Barnhouse said that the, instant, the answer came to him in a flash, and he said, what God wants most of all in the world is to be believed and to be trusted. Do you believe him this morning? Do you trust him? Do you trust his words and accept him even though you don't fully understand everything? The disciples were in a very precarious place here because their life was about to get turned up and down. They had just spent three years of miracle after miracle and joy. And I mean, imagine walking with someone who you've seen walk on water, feed 5,000 with a few fishes and a few loaves, make blind people see, make blind, lame people walk, and now he's going away. Imagine the turbulence that you would feel. But Jesus is teaching them to trust him and not their own sight. To trust him and not what they experience or even want to experience. But to allow his words to penetrate their heart and lead them in the way he wants them to go. You don't trust him if you're always complaining about circumstances. You don't trust him if you're always worrying about the future. You don't trust him if you're fretting over disappointments every day. On the contrary, you glorify him when you trust him in every situation. When you say, I am his and I will follow him wherever it leads me. When you look at just the life of the disciples, every one of them died badly. Tortured, martyred. But what did Paul say? Though he slay me, 
Actually, it was Job. <laughs> but what did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Think of that. Though he slay me, I will trust him. We don't get the job we want, and we walk away. I don't get shed the problem I'm dealing with, and I'm gone. Will we understand the depth of the Holy Spirit working in our life? Number three, by living a holy life. Holiness is the attribute of God most mentioned in the pages of the Word of God. Now, you would think to, in t today that the attribute most mentioned would be love. But this is not true. To be sure, love is a wonderful attribute, and it's a wonderful because we don't deserve it. But the attribute most mentioned in the Bible about God is holiness. So if we would glorify Him, we must make His holiness known, allowing Him to work through us His holiness in a dark, sinful world. So we naturally ask ourselves, how important is holiness to me? Or are we willing to compromise our own personal desires? What is holiness? Let me tell you exactly what holiness is. Holiness is absolute surrender to God in every area of our life. That's holiness, to absolutely surrender our lives in every way. Number four by confession of him before the world. Now, it's important to believe on Christ as Savior and trust him. It's equally important to live a holy life. But in addition to this, we must also testify of his grace, simply because we are called to be witnesses and have something great to say. There's not a one of us when some experience happens that we're excited about that we don't share. But yet it's so hard to share the faith that he has done in us. Number five, and number five is very much like number four, by our efforts to share his saving grace. Now, the first one is making the confession, number four, but now the efforts to share it. We glorify him by sharing the hope that is in us, by telling of his saving grace. Very few Christians spend any time sharing Christ. The church needs to wake up. You know, Paul has a way of saying things. I like to quote him because he has a very unique way of getting his point across where there's no confusion. And in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with these Corinthian people and he's calling them out on some areas in their life that's just not where it should be. And I love a verse that really gripped my heart when I was a student in college. And it's always been at the back of my mind for all these years. But Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I speak it to your shame. I mean, he's saying, saved, accepted Christ, come back to your senses. Come back to what you're supposed to be doing. Stop sinning there's still people out there who don't know the word <laughs> and 
I speak it to you, shame. Would to God that we would take that verse and let it speak into our hearts. Because being saved by the Holy Spirit, by, as he draws us to Christ and his word, and what Christ did on Calvary, and knowing the truth, and knowing our eternity is in heaven forever, knowing that no matter how bad this life is going to be, we have eternity with Christ. How long can we go on keeping it to ourselves? That's why John said, I must decrease and he must increase. That's why we talk about the Holy Spirit taking over our lives, because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. We simply, there's not one person here under your own strength who has the power and the nerve to go share Christ and expect it, something to happen. It's only as the Spirit of God works through you. And Paul says, look, Christians, would you please come back to your senses, come back to the purpose of your salvation, and stop sinning? In other words, stop doing life your own way. Start doing it my way, because there's people who haven't heard and it's to your shame that you're not doing what I've called you to do. Now, prayer for others. And here, <laughs> here my own heart as a pastor is exposed. In this chapter, we see Christ praying for us. And as he does, giving the reasons for his intercession, because we belong to the Father, because Jesus and the Father have a mutual interest in us, and because he is glorified in us. But it's not only the Lord that is to have this ministry of intercession. We have a ministry of intercession too. We are to pray for others. And the reason why we are to pray for others are precisely the same reasons that Jesus gave why he prayed. And here's why every one of us should be praying for every one of us. Number one, because that person belongs to the Father and is valued by Him. Now, if you just look at the person next to you right now, now they might be family members and you might pray for them on a regular basis, but the pew in front of you, the people sitting behind you, do you realize if they've accepted Christ, they belong and we should be praying for them. What is valued by the Father should be valued by us. Number two, because you have a mutual interest in them. Christians are bound up in the life of God together. When the Lord calls an individual to faith in himself, he calls them not to an individual relationship alone, but he calls him into the church. He takes people from every race, culture, and he puts them together in one body of the church to show that binding principle of love to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be together as a church building up one another. We should be coming alongside each other and encouraging and lifting up and blessing and helping where we can help, sacrificing where we have to sacrifice but living for each other because we belong to God the Father and we need to care for whom God loves. Therefore, we should pray for one another because their success is our success. Man, I, I, I got to tell you, 
when you witness a breakthrough in life, when you see someone get it, there's no other feeling. There's nothing better. To see them rise above and follow the Lord and watch what happens in their lives. Number three, because God is glorified in them. If we are living a life of holiness, our heart's desire is to see others grow. The major prayer I have every week is that you who would find the truth that you're looking for, that when you come and sit here, that the Spirit would open your heart. That's my prayer every week, that you're not just coming to sit in a service and then leave like nothing happened, but that you would meet the Savior, that he would work in your heart, and that your life would be changed. To find the word that elevates you above all your situations and shows you how you can triumph. You see, we're very good at deflecting responsibility. We do it by thinking, well, I'm only one of so many. No one will miss what I do or don't do. There's so many people here this morning, if I don't uphold my, nobody's going to see it. But do you see how that reasoning is false? You have an audience of one. You live to glorify one. And in so doing, glorify those around you. So it's not what others see or don't see. It's what he sees that counts. It's what he is doing. And, you know, if, if we continue on, now let me just throw the rest of the a couple more verses up here. Go to uh, verse 11 back in 17. Because Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And that message is passed through this whole chapter. Because when you and I are accountable to the audience of one, there's unity. And when there's unity, that's one of the greatest testimonies to the world around us. Everybody wants unity. Everyone wants a sense of belonging. Everybody wants to know that they belong to something that counts. And when you and I live together in unity, answering to only one individually, our collective group shouts unity. And Jesus is saying here very clearly, he says it so clearly, he says, I am praying that they will be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I, I have guarded them, and, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But notice now. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, now notice, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Back in, in John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus has already stated this. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. So where does our true joy come from? It's Christ. 
Christ alone. Christ living in me. Christ living through me. That's what true joy is. And this morning as we sit here together and talk and share, we have handed before us the unmistakable, uncomprehendable opportunity to live the joy before before the world because it's Christ in me, not me in you. And that's why when you yield to the Holy Spirit and you allow the Spirit of God to live in and through you, what comes out of you is God. And that's what the world desperately needs to see. And that's what he has made so clear to us. So, understand this. Grace Fellowship Church will never rise above your level. Grace Fellowship Church will never rise above your commitment. And Grace Fellowship Church will never grow beyond those you bring in. May I just summarize the condition of many, and maybe you today. Many have a resurrected heart. Many have saving faith. God has rolled the stone away, and he's given us new life. But we haven't come out living like we're still dead. When God saves you, we can echo what Isaiah said so clearly, that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Don't you want that life? It's time to come out of the time to come out of the tomb and walk with the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, I thank you for the amazing testimony of the prayer of Jesus that he prayed for those disciples and in so doing prayed for us. Lord, I know that there may be here this, some here this morning that have struggled so much with the things of this world trying to find their way up, trying to find the oxygen. And all they've done is run into a wall because they're trying to do it their own way. God, work in our hearts. Give us that peace and that assurance that we're following you and that we're surrendered to you and that you are living through us. Give us the clear understanding that the reason you prayed for us right before you were arrested was to lay before the Father your heart that all of us would walk with you. I pray that you encourage us this morning. I pray that you would strengthen us and whatever needs to be done in the heart of everyone here, I pray that you would do. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I'm not going to call anybody out, but you would like me to pray for you, not by name, but the things you're dealing with, if you just slip your hand up, I'd be happy to, to pray for you. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Say amen. Praise God.
Father, you've seen the hearts of these people. You know their hearts, and they know now that all they need to do is satisfy one desire. I pray you would do the work in that heart, Lord, whatever it might be, for salvation, for for rededication, for just surrender to you. God, do that work. And Lord, if there is any here who need to know you as Savior, I pray that you would bring them to me afterwards, through one of the men, one of the ladies, that you can show them beyond.